Hello, and thank you for being a member of the History of World War II podcast, episode 222, Come and Make Me. Early on the morning of May 5th, some two and a half months before the raid on Dieppe was launched, the Allies came ashore in northern Madagascar. But first, the air raids came in, dropping leaflets and then bombs. The Vichy resisted instantly, so much for a mutual stand-down of respect. London would have to earn the island the old-fashioned way, that is, the iron price. Just south of Antserene, the major port city and the capital of the Diana region, which made up the southern part of the Diego Suarez Bay, there was a strong defensive line, and below that was the main airfield in the area at Arachart. The Vichy planes there, fighters and bombers, posed a threat to the British fleet, thus they had to be neutralized first thing. Just before 5 a.m., aircraft from 831 Squadron dropped bombs and incendiaries on the aerodrome. At 5 a.m., eight Sea Hurricanes from 888 Squadron left the Indomitable to finish off anything of value that was still intact. When they left soon after, two Potez 63 bombers and two Potez 25 biplanes, obsolete but still dangerous, and five Moraine fighters had been added to the tally of aircraft the Vichy could no longer use. And whether it would affect the coming ground battle or not, Detachment Commander Lieutenant Rossigny had been killed by a stray hurricane bullet. As for Rossigny's superior, Colonel Clarabou, the military commander, he still believed the main attack was coming from the southeast for two reasons. First, he had received no word from Windsor Castle, the fort that was on the western shore, as those phone lines had been cut. Next were the dummy pair troops that were dropped from three swordfish planes further south. Thus, Colonel Caribou sent his only mechanized unit, the detachment of reconnaissance motorized, in that direction. But then, the British outsmarted themselves. To add even more confusion as to the true direction of their attack, the light cruiser HMS Hermione closed in on the Arangia Pass, specifically just south of it, at Cap Milny, to supposedly take out the batteries there so that the other ships could enter the bay. Yet in that area were the 164mm guns on the Le Point de Vue battery and these had a longer range than the Hermione, so she was forced to quit the area before a lucky shot sent her to the bottom. Either way, Vichy eyes were looking to the southeast, as the real attack would come from the southwest, once they rounded the closest part of Diego Suarez Bay. So, to sum up so far, the Vichy were looking in the wrong direction, but all available forces were now alert and ready. For the purpose of organization, the landing zones used by the British-led forces were thus, from north to south. Red Beach with three locations, Blue Beach, and then a bit further south, White Beach, and then Green Beach. The three Red Beach points were close to Windsor Castle, itself close to the shoreline and to the northwest of Atzerain. The two most southern landing points, white and green, is where the first Royal Scott Fusiliers came ashore. They at green, and then the Welsh Fusiliers were headed to White Beach. A reporter of the Daily Telegraph witnessed the scene. Quote, 
Through a powerful broadcasting amplifier, a bronzed 22-year-old beachmaster was shouting orders to a dozen landing craft a hundred yards out, telling them at which point to beach. They came in one after another like trains arriving at a terminus. Dozens of crafts, perhaps, but it was still not enough to bring the entire invasion force to shore all in one go. Still, as practiced, the first men to land began to form a perimeter around their respective beach, which allowed those behind them to bring ashore all they would need for this operation. Food, machine guns, mortars, and of course, lots of ammunition. And because the three red beaches had landed first, when the craft went back to get the Scott and Welsh Fusiliers, there were only 580 of the Scott and 512 of the Welsh, but they also had with them 14 Bren gun carriers. Hopefully, either they would not be attacked yet, or the Bren guns would hold off the enemy until more men arrived. But for now, no Vichy troops contested their amphibious landings. But it would not be quite the same at Blue Beach. When the landing craft picked up what was left for the Red Beaches, they also transported the East Lanks for Blue Beach, specifically at Base Point, which was located between the most southern Red Beach and White Beach. And the East Lanks needed things to go right for them, as at Blue Beach, which stuck out a little, forming a small peninsula, to the right and left of their landing was marshland, which made movement difficult. As the men of the 2nd Battalion of the East Lancashire Regiment moved closer to shore, by now soaked from the waves coming over the sides, those waves were joined by bullets. On shore were around 50 Senegalese infantry. One witness aboard one of the craft wrote, Machine gun bullets lashed the sea into feathers of foam, and several penetrated the hull of the landing craft. But it would be the Senegalese that would have a bad day. Among the craft taking the Lancashires to Blue Beach, there were a few lifeboats from the Royal Ulstermen, and they had Bren guns mounted. Those started going off and firing at those on land, but the invaders did not stop there. Some of those coming ashore were diverted a bit to the north, while the main body landed at Blue Beach and engaged the defending troops. But those that had landed a bit to the north, they swung around. So now the Senegalese troops were outgunned and exposed, and they ran back to their huts. The lynx quickly set these afire and chased away any other defenders. Thus were the several selected spots along the west coast finally secured. The opening phase had gone to the British-led forces, but nature could be an opponent as well. During the first two hours, just under 2,400 men had been landed. It should have been a lot more. Besides which, there were still mines within Courier Bay yet to be collected, cut, or neutralized. And it was then that Mother Nature decided to increase the wind which affected the smaller craft and might just drive them in to any lingering mines. But again, as Blue Beach stuck out a bit, the other ships that morning were sent there, like the Bacallero, bringing the 29th Brigade's transport and attached artillery. But even here, the Bacallero had to wait until noon as more mines were found. No one likes surprises in a war zone. And then it got worse. The crew of the Bacchietto found that the beach was not suited to offloading, so smaller ships would have to be used. 
and it was quickly estimated that two days would be needed to get all those vehicles and guns ashore. That was unacceptable. It wasn't much better at Red Beach. The Vichy troops at Windsor Castle, again hard upon where the Red Beaches were at, was not aware of what was going on. Not yet. And they couldn't communicate with or be communicated with because their phone lines had been cut. And as Windsor Castle was really just a fort on a height, they did have a good view of the surrounding area. And when they did see the commandos coming at them, they made life hard for those British troops. Now, this went on until 11.30 a.m., but that's when the HMS Devonshire was asked to bombard Windsor Castle. That must have been an ironic request to make. But for whatever reason, Captain Oliver decided not to use his ship's guns. But instead, he sent up his onboard walrus seaplane to drop bombs on the enemy fort. The walrus lumbered through ten sorties, and then albacores and hurricanes went in. But as there was no direct hit, mostly what was destroyed was the land around the fort. Those inside survived and kept resisting. Meanwhile, there was also a bit of trouble at sea. As Windsor was being ineffectually bombed, the minesweeper Auricula hit a mine. Other craft were sent over to unload the crew, but an assessment showed that while the damaged ship was damaged, too damaged to operate, she was not damaged enough to sink. As no one had time for this, she was left there at anchor. Maybe it would give Vichy something to shoot at. But if this attack went the way it was supposed to, then there would be no Vichy or Vichy with weapons to do any shooting. As the French troops inside Windsor Castle were making it difficult for Number 5 commandos to cross to the south of their fort, Something clearly had to be done. Something more concrete. So the destroyer La Foray was ordered to close in and bombard the fort on the height. Again, as the fort was just under two miles from the shore, this should not be difficult. The shells started to fly. The La Foray's 4.7-inch guns started up, per Captain Hutton, at 3.26 p.m., it took 29 rounds, but then a white flag was seen over the fort. To this, Hutton sent a signal to the French in the fort that said, Come down, or we will continue. Soon, Hutton was told by those on the ground closer to the castle that French troops could be seen exiting and coming down the hill, until they weren't. As the commandos started closing in on the height, the French troops rushed back up, and started throwing grenades at the commandos. That's how close the British got. One of the grenades wounded the commando commander, Captain Heron. Laferay was asked, none too gently this time, to again open fire. The destroyer's guns started up again at 4.58 p.m. This time, 36 rounds were shot off, and one of those scored a direct hit on the living quarters, just below the height. But... The French stayed in place and would not surrender. As this position needed to be neutralized about eight hours ago, the Lightning and the minesweeper Cromarty joined in on the shelling. Still, the French would not surrender. But that wasn't the only French war item refusing to stand down. As 100 or so shells landed around Windsor Castle, aircraft from the fleet air arm were attacking the French sloop, Dontre Castu. 
Going back to just after midday, two planes from 810 Squadron made an attack run on the French sloop from 4,000 feet. Their bombs landed to just either side of the target, which caused damage, but she was still intact enough to fight back. Fortunately, one of the last bombs went through the platform deck before exploding. The sloop turned away to the west and went deep into the Cope de Sac Galois, that part of the bay that makes up the most southwestern part. There, the water was more shallow, and should the sloop sink, she could be resurrected. It took a while, but at 2.45 p.m., six aircraft from the illustrious found her, beached in a sandy cove. The swordfish went in, but their bombs just exploded around the ship. Well, there's always more than one way to skin a cat, so the fighters started a strafing run, their bullets going deep into the vessel. One French sailor would write, shots penetrate to the very center of the ship. On the spar deck, chunks of wood jump in the air. Our funnels are on fire. A dense cloud of smoke envelops us. Everything is torn up, twisted, bent, and broken. Be that as it may, the guns on the sloop were still operational. Three of the swordfish were damaged. Two of them would be out for days with repairs underway. Earlier, we mentioned the Bacallero trying to get more men and supplies ashore, but she had to wait for the minesweepers. But then a fast motorboat came alongside her and said that they had found a decent enough place at Red Beach. The minesweeper Cromarty led the way, which was fortunate as two more mines were found and had to be cut loose. But finally, the Bacallero got close to solid land. Close, but not close enough. Still needs must, so a portable wooden jetty was tied to the ship, and they managed to get three Bren gun carriers to shore. Of course, they still had to traverse through water, but it was doable. But the same could not be said for the next set of vehicles. They quickly got bogged down, so 60 soldiers had to jump in the water that was neck deep and pull on a rope to get those vehicles to the beach. As can be imagined, this took time, and at 5.15 p.m., the tide started to rise. No more vehicles were getting ashore unless Bacalletto could somehow get further onto the beach, which is exactly what happened. Hold on to your hats, folks, because Lieutenant Commander McMullen had the Bacalletto reverse course to a point about a mile from the shore. He had the ship's bow pointed right at the beach, which is when he said, full speed ahead. When the Bacallero and its slightly insane captain were 200 yards from shore, McMullen had the engines cut. The soldiers on the beach watched, shocked, until they realized what the commander was up to. So they started cheering. Then they stopped cheering as they realized that ship was about to come a lot closer to them than they first realized. Putting the theatrics aside, though nicely done, this was the first tank landing ship to land on a hostile beach. And with that, the rest of the cargo was disembarked by 7 p.m. And as the Bacanero was much lighter now, the captain was able to reverse course and make for deeper water. Who knows when the last time the Bacanero was careened or had its barnacles removed, but it would be a while before she needed it again.